Hey, so if you've got your Bible, we're going to be back in the book of Jude today. We're, we're, we started in Jude last week, and um, we started with an excellent performance by a really great duo of the book of Jude. You may have seen that. If, if not, you really missed out. The performance was so good, we couldn't even repeat it this week. It was so good. And, uh, but you might want to check that out online. Jude's pretty short book is 25 verses, and you may think there's not that much to say about it, but we are going to come back to Jude in two weeks. Next week, Michael, our preaching apprentice, is going to preach for us. He's going to do a really great job out of the Gospel of Mark. It's a really excellent sermon. You don't want to miss that. And we'll come back and we'll finish out Jude on, on March 17th. And you may be right, there may not be that much to say about it, so it may be a short Sunday. But I'm looking forward to that, and I hope that you'll uh, take advantage of that and come back here and be reading Jude this week. Last week, we were talking about the grace of God as it's revealed in the book of Jude. And what I said was that the grace of God is not only the power of forgiveness that you and I experience, but it is the power of God that then moves a forgiven people towards the holiness of God over the course of their lives and into eternity. That's the power of grace at work among us. And at one level, as we think about, you know, what grace is moving us towards the holiness of God, at one level, that idea of God being holy is simple. It means that God is different. He's not like anybody else, anything else. God is holy because he's different. But what makes God holy is anything but simple. What Jude says in his opening verses is that the holiness of God is about his, his mercy, his peace, and his love. At the very end of his letter, he says that the holiness of God is about God's glory and majesty and power and authority. And what we find described in Jude is a holiness that is set apart primarily from one thing, and that thing is sin. Okay. But the power of God's holiness is demonstrated in his ability to save us. And we find that in verse 3, where we read about the salvation of God. We're going to come back to that passage in a moment. But when God saves us, which is not just an event that happens for eternity, but is an event that happens throughout our lives, what we should be moved by is God's holiness. Okay? That's what Moses says after God comes down and he delivers Israel from Egyptian slavery. He moves them into the wilderness, escaping from Egypt, who's pursuing them. He demolishes the Egyptian hordes who are in pursuit. And then Moses stops in Exodus 15 and he sings. He says, who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who's like you, majestic in holiness? And the answer is nobody, nobody. Okay, because God's holy, he's unlike all others. And that holiness is going to be proven again when in the same way that God came and delivered Israel, he will come again. And you find this in verse 14 of Jude, if you're looking at it in front of you, that the holiness of God is proven again when God comes. See, the Lord is coming. Jude looks up and says, says see, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones. Okay. His holiness is proven as he returns to save and judge the earth. Now, Jude does not explain God's holiness much more than that. He assumes that, that you and I read our Bibles, 
when we've got a pretty good grip on the holiness of God. But I'll tell you, the holiness of God is profound and not simple, like I'm describing. You know, you start talking about the glory, majesty, and power, and authority of God, you're swimming in pretty deep waters. So let me challenge you. We, we made this challenge last week, and a bunch of you took us up on it. Every week after the sermon on Sunday, there is available on Right Now Media, which is a streaming service that our Highland partners with and gives you access to for free. There is a, on our Highland Church of Christ channel on Right Now Media, you can access a training post that's designed to help you read your Bible. And this week, the topic is the holiness of God. So if you want to go deeper in the topic we're going to be talking about this morning during this sermon, you want to spend some time in the Word of God this week that's guided, you can log into Right Now Media on your device, a tablet, a phone, a computer. You can follow that training post. You can journal. You can fill in the questions that we've got there. There's a couple of videos to help you read that. Let me challenge you to, to take us up on that. You know, I mentioned last week, all kinds of research indicates that churches do thousands of things to help people grow spiritually. And the people who grow spiritually are the ones that read their Bible. Yeah. So let me challenge you to be reading it this week. You can re- learn more about the holiness of God on Right Now Media. On the front of the link are instructions for how to access that if you're not on there yet. Okay, but here's the point. Let's jump back in. Somebody told me this story, or I read it somewhere, I can't remember. It was an atheist who said this. He said that at some point, everyone prays. So this was somebody who doesn't believe in God. He said that at some point, everyone prays. And this is what he meant. He said, either you, you pray regularly, you may pray occasionally, but if you never pray at all, there will come a point in your life when you will pray. When it'll get so desperate that you'll pray. And you might say, well, who do you pray to in that moment? And the answer is kind of obvious. Well, you you pray to to God. But why do you pray to, to God? And the answer to that is because God is holy. And here's what I mean. If God was like anyone else, he wouldn't be worth praying to. The only reason that God is worth praying to is because he is unlike everyone else. And in your moment of desperation, when everyone else can't help you, what you hope is that there's somebody who can. And the only way that there would be somebody who can help you is if God is actually holy, unlike everyone else. You know, when you reach that moment, what you sound like or who you sound like, sorry, is David. This is Psalm 33. When David prays this, he says, contend, pay attention to that first word, contend, Lord, with those who contend with me, fight against those who fight against me, take up shield and armor, arise, come to my aid, brandish spear and javelin against those who pursue me, say to me, I am your salvation. That word salvation shows up in Jude 3. And ultimately, everybody gets to this point. And we resonate with David, who prays this prayer that God would contend for us, that he would fight for us, that he would go to battle for us, because we do arrive at that point where we need somebody more powerful than us, unlike everyone else, to fight for us. We all get there, right? And our reasons may not compare to David's. You know, he had this maniacal king chasing him through the desert, trying to, trying to kill him, and not all of us have been there. But we do get to these desperate points. And when we get there, we say like, David, Lord, you've seen this. Don't be silent. 
Don't be far away from me, Lord. Awake, rise to my defense and contend for me, my God and Lord. So here's, here's the good news. Here's the overwhelming message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is contending. You know, the great comfort, the reason you have hope, the reason I have hope, is that God is contending for me, not only eternally, but in this life. And that when I pray, he hears me. And that I am not alone, that he is never far away, and that he is fighting for me. I mean, that's the good news of the gospel. We see that no more clearly than in the cross of Jesus Christ. When this battle that I cannot possibly win on my own against sin, Jesus fights for me. Right? On the cross, okay. God is contending. But look at Jude. Now look at verse 3 of Jude. Because what Jude does is he, he turns the tables on us. We don't see this coming. We didn't expect this. We've been praying to God to contend for us, but then Jude says this, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. Now that's disarming, or at least it should be. You know, especially if you are accustomed to language like David's, Psalm 33, if your own prayers sound like David's, pleading with God to contend for you, right? And it's difficult for Protestants who believe that our salvation is by grace through faith and that the faith that we feel inside of us, our confidence in the holy God is, is something that we, we have by his grace, but it's not something we, we fight for. We wouldn't even begin to know how to, how to fight for that or contend for that. And it really raises this question, you know, when it comes to faith, what's God's responsibility and what's mine? You know, what's he in charge of? What's on me? What's on me? Okay, uh, probably what comes to mind first when you hear that language, contend for the faith, what probably comes to mind for you, like it does for me, is what we sometimes call, big fancy word, apologetics. Uh, you don't need to remember that word. What that word means is defense. It means how do you defend what you believe? You know, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, like you say in these waters of baptism, well, how do you defend that to somebody who asks you? You know, if you believe that Jesus not only died but was resurrected, well, how, how do you defend that? If you believe that God is the creator of heavens and earth, well, how, well, how do you defend that? That's what apologetics means. And that's what a lot of us think of when we think of contending for the faith. First Peter says it like this in 3.15, you should, you should always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. You should always be prepared. Well, we're going to do a series on that next. It's actually the next series after Jude. How do we defend what, what we believe? So we really think that's an important piece of life in Christ. That may be part of it, but that is not what Jude's describing when he says contend for the faith. All right, let me show you. We're going to get a little bit technical here. If you do have a Bible, open it up to Jude. If not, you can follow along, but it may help to actually see this visually in Jude. So in Jude, in verse 3, the verse I just read, Jude starts with this command, this instruction to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's, what kind of people? Holy people. Okay, so the faith belongs to holy people. All right, and then if you swing to the end of Jude, you're probably not even going to have to turn your, a page in your Bible, maybe just one. It's only 25 verses, but in verses 20 and 21, you read this. 
But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most, what kind of faith? Holy faith. And by praying in the, what kind of spirit? Holy spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love. Okay, so, so what type of faith is it we're contending for? It's a holy one. By whose power? The power of the Holy Spirit. All right, to get technical for a second, I don't do this often. What you have here is two parallel statements, one at the beginning of the letter, one at the end. And so what they're doing is they're serving as brackets for the whole letter of Jude. Okay. And since they're parallel, they really define each other. What you should do is you should read them together to try to make sense of them. And as you read them together, what you, what you find here is that holy people contend for the holy faith by building themselves up in that most holy faith. So there's one word that should, should stick out to you. It's holy. So if we were to condense that kind of complicated sentence, what we would say is you and I contend for the faith by pursuing holiness. Okay, so if you've got these two brackets here, what you do is you look in the middle of the brackets and see if what's happening between the brackets, brackets explains them even more. And what you find there right in the middle of the brackets in verses 10 and 11, so if you want to look at that, do, are these series of examples that are all about holiness. So this is what we read. Yet these people, and he's talking about people in his church, slander whatever they do not understand and the very things they do understand by instinct as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them, or curses on them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error, and they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Okay. So who are these people in the first line, the first three words there? Well, they're people in his church, but what do we know about them? We'll figure out what we know about him. We pay attention to the three people he lists in this verse here. So you've got Cain. You remember Cain? What does Cain do? Kills his brother. Kills his brother Abel. And he kills his brother Abel out of pride. He's upset that God chooses Abel's sacrifice over his. And so he kills his own brother and he's proud. Okay, and then you've got Balaam. And Balaam's story may not be as familiar to you, but it actually shows up throughout the Old Testament, not just in Numbers where we find it originally, but you keep throughout the Old Testament having references back to Balaam. And Balaam's kind of a sorcerer that is hired by enemies of the people of God to stand on a mountainside and curse the people of God. And he, he takes their money, he goes up there to curse them, and he just can't do it. Every time he tries to pronounce a curse, just blessings come out. So the power of God's working through him, okay? And as you notice here, it says he rushed for profit into Balaam's error. So what's Balaam about? It's about greed, the things you do for greed. So these people in Jude's church are apparently proud and greedy, so they're nothing like modern-day Christians. You know, some of you got that. The rest of you are proud and greedy. Okay. But then you have Korah, and, you know, we're, we're kind of mired down the weeds a little bit with technical stuff here. But the stories actually, those three examples are out of chronological order. So Korah actually comes before Balaam, but Jude switches them and puts Balaam before Korah. That's a technique that's used in ancient writing. What that's doing is it's going to emphasize the last example. So it's like this building crescendo or this building wave that is going to crash onto Korah. And what he's saying is that Korah, his story is most like the story of these people in Jude's church. And when it comes to defining holiness, 
The story of Korah is really proving one point. You cannot trust your instincts. When it comes to the holiness of God, don't trust your instincts. Um, it's been a really interesting six months for Lindsay and I. We had a, we had a kid six months ago. And since uh, he was born, just, you know, through random chance or through the work of Satan, I'm not sure, we've been sick a lot in my house. Uh, so we've had the flu, we've had strep throat a couple of times, a number of ear infections, various kinds of fevers. The night that we brought uh, Deacon home from the hospital, I, I got pneumonia. So I held him to like two in the morning and then I took my temperature and it was 102.5. So shouldn't have been holding him, right? And um, we just could not figure that out. Fortunately, we go to church with all of our doctors. So Dr. Derek helped me get better. And then our pediatricians, Dr. Bubba and Dr. Andy, have just been hugely helpful. And so we, we were all constantly in contact with them. They probably hate coming to church with us, okay? Um, but I'll never forget after Noble was born, our oldest. So we're young parents. We're just desperate. Every time he's just like, the, just a little bit fussy. We go where? To the doctor, right? And we're trying to figure out what's wrong. And I, I'll never forget, we're in there one time and we're sitting with Dr. Bubba and Lindsay's asking him a bunch of questions, just boom, 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 just firing questions at him. And he reaches forward behind her head and just kind of like, you know, what are you doing? He does this thing and what does he do? He pulls out a sucker out of her ear, candy sucker. And so she, he hands it to her and she's like, okay. And she keeps asking questions and he says, take the wrapper off. She's like, okay. He says, put it in your mouth. <laughs> she does. She kind of rests like this. And he says, I'm going to tell you the most important thing. He says, trust your instincts. Trust your instincts. And Andy has said that to us a thousand times too now. And that has proven true so often. Right? That when it comes to parenting, surprisingly enough, God has, has hardwired into us this ability to, to keep three little ones from killing each other. And I know that, you know, that kind of remains to be seen, Cain and Abel and all that, you know, but like generally we're doing okay. You know, we, we trust our instincts and with every kid that we have, we trust them a little bit more. We're not at the doctor near as often until the last six months actually. But that may be, now that may be true of parenting that you can trust your instincts, but it is not true of the holiness of God. What Jude's saying here in verse 10 is that our instincts are dangerous. And if you just follow your instincts in this life, what you think you are, what you think you should do, what feels best to you, you may have some fun, right? You may get what you want, but ultimately your instincts will destroy you. You know, there's a lot we just don't understand. And because of that, our instincts cannot be trusted. Our instincts cannot be the standard of the holiness that God is calling us to. We don't get to choose and we shouldn't get to. Okay. And that's what Korah's rebellion is about. It's this climactic example in the book of Jude. It actually comes from Numbers 16. So here's what happens. Israel leaves Egypt. God delivers them. He saves them. And they come into the wilderness and they begin to mess things up. So God says they're going to stay in the wilderness for 40 years. But he doesn't want them to stay there by themselves. He wants to come and he wants to be with them. I mean, these are his people. And so he gives them these really detailed instructions for how to build a tabernacle, a place for him to come and live. 
And it's all about holiness. It's all about this, this place being set apart from everything that's sinful and bad around them. And then he gives the people who are living around the tabernacle in the wilderness all of these instructions to follow so that they will be holy. If they can meet all of these standards that God gives them, they'll be holy and he can be there as a holy God among a holy people. I mean, it's this, this perfect system. The only problem is to be like God requires meeting a lot of standards. And so Moses is giving them all these standards that are coming straight from God. And famously, Korah comes to him and he says, Moses, you've gone too far. He says, the whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord's with them. Can we throw that up on the screen? This is number 16.3. You have gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord's with them. So then a few verses later, we find this. As soon as he finished saying all this, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and it swallowed them and their households and all those associated with Korah together with their possessions. They went down alive into the realm of the dead and everything they own. And the earth closed over them and they perished and were gone from the community. And at their cries, all the Israelites around them fled saying, the earth is going to swallow us up too. I was telling this story in the prison this week in our prison Bible study. And there's this one guy who never pays attention. I told the story of the earth opening up and swallowing a bunch of people. And he looks up and he says, say what? You know, like, this is, this is not a VBS story. This is a crazy story. And what Jude's saying is, this isn't just an Old Testament story. This is an early church story. And maybe this is a modern church story. He's saying that like Korah... What some people do is they define holiness by their own standards. They trust their own instincts, right? If I think I'm good, I'm good. And you know what? You're all good. We're all good. You just do you, I'll do me. And you know what? I bet we're holy, every one of us. There's nothing to worry about. The whole community, uh-oh. I'm getting worked up. That's the chapel pack. Don't worry about it. They say, we define holiness by our own standards, right? You know, if you think you're holy, you're good. If I think I'm holy, I'm good. We're all, we're all good. And what Jude's saying is that just doesn't happen to Jews living in the wilderness. That happens at church. You know, it happens among God's people. And that probably raises the question for you. Well, what was, what was Jude's church doing what were they doing there that was just so bad? You know, they, were, they were proud, they were, they were greedy, but was there, was there something else? And yeah, there was. Uh, sexually, they were doing some bad stuff. And we don't know exactly what all that stuff included. We, we just, we frankly don't know. But I kind of hesitate to tell you that they were doing sexually bad stuff, okay? Because many of you who are not doing sexually bad stuff then what you do is you compare yourself to them and you say, well, I'm doing pretty good. You know, I'm not looking at things I'm not supposed to look at. I'm not sleeping around with anybody, you know, with my body. I'm doing pretty good. Hashtag contending. And that's the problem. That's, that's actually the problem. That, that we are not the standard of God's holiness, but that others are not the standard of God's holiness either. 
that God is the standard of God's holiness to which we are called. Jude says, it, sorry, Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 10. He says, we dare not classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. All right, so what does this all, what does this all mean? When you and I think about faith, we think about something that's inside of us. Our belief, our hope in this holy God, a God who is unlike any other or any one. But I think that just like grace isn't just the forgiveness you experience and hear, but that grace is this power that's then moving you towards the holiness of God. Faith or the faith, as Jude calls it, isn't just something that happens inside here. It is like grace, a power that's on the move in the world. You know, faith or the faith is the thing that jumps between you and someone sitting across from you when you study the gospel together. You know, when the good news of Jesus, that moment when it finally convicts their hearts, I mean, that's the moment that faith has leapt from you to them. Or when you go to the hospital to visit somebody who's, who's lost somebody or who's got some terrible diagnosis, let me promise you from somebody who's done it many times, when you walk into that room, you have no idea what you're going to say. But you go because deep down you hope that when you sit by them in silence and you take their hand in yours, that somehow the faith in here is going to radiate between you and into their hearts and that your faith will sustain them when theirs won't. And like we started with the story about the atheist, at that moment when everyone prays, even the unbeliever, if you could peer inside the heart of that unbeliever, I think what you would find in that heart is that unbeliever falls on their knees and prays to this holy God, the hope is out there. What you would find are the embers of faith, right? That that fire is not totally out and that it could possibly be stoked. The faith is still there. And what Jude is saying is that our relationship to the faith isn't passive. You know, that we are called to take action, that we need to contend for the faith. Now, we're not contending for our salvation as though we could earn it. We're not contending for God's love as though we don't already have it. We're not contending for his grace as though we deserve it. But we are contending for the life-changing and life-giving power of the faith that's on the move among us. You know, but if the faith, if what it hinges on is the holiness of God, you know, if what the faith is ultimately about is that there is a God out there who is unlike any other God, that there is a God whose son was dead and dead for three days and then who came back to life, who was resurrected, unlike anyone else ever has been. You know, that there is a God who is without sin and has shown us the possibility of a life that is not overwhelmed and overburdened by the power of sin, a life that is unlike any other that anyone else out there lives. You know, if the faith is dependent on the holiness of God, what Jude is saying is that faith must be defended by people who are holy like that God. Okay, when we are unholy, 
what it says to the world is that our God is unholy too. Is that fair? I don't know, but it's true, right? And if God is unholy, this is what it hinges on. If God is unholy, then he's not worth putting faith in. The only reason he's worth the faith is because he's holy. I'm reminded I grew up in the 90s, child of the 90s. I'm reminded of that DC Talk song, What If I Stumble, and the opening lines of that song. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. That's what an unbelieving world finds simply unbelievable. Now you say, and I'm with you, well, that is unfair. I can't possibly be like God. I mean, we're talking about God and we're talking about me. And I've got a hard enough time, you know, sustaining the faith that's inside here, nevertheless contending for some faith that's out there, whatever that is, whatever that looks like. I mean, I'm trying to raise a family, get kids to t-ball practice and soccer practice. I mean, I'm just, I'm just surviving. I can't possibly be expected to be like God. And yet Jude says in verse 15, I don't have this one on the slide. I just added it this weekend. Bear with me. Jude says that when God returns and proves his holiness once and for all, that what he'll do in verse 15, if you're looking, is judge everyone and convict all of them of the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Does any word stick out there? I said it really slow and I counted. (laughs) Ungodly, ungodly. Now, next week, we're going to talk about this passage, about the judgment of God. Not next week, two weeks from now. Let me give you a foreshadowing. I think the judgment of God is a good thing. It's not something to be afraid of. It is something to long for. But notice what he's saying. Ungodly, that we will be judged for everything ungodly we have done. This is what he's saying. You know, the God who is unlike any other expects us to be like him. And as audacious, as outrageous as that sounds, the holy God is not content that you remain unholy and therefore ungodly. He wants you to become holy by doing what's godly. Now, his expectation is that you will pursue holiness because the faith is at stake. I'm not saying your salvation is at stake. I'm not saying that grace is at stake or that God's love is at stake. That's hard to say. I want a stake is what it sounds like. (laughs) I'm not saying that any of those things are in danger. Okay. God's not saying that any of those things, your salvation, his grace, his love are your responsibility. But the faith, that's on you. He says, that's up to you to contend for. You're going to call on God throughout your life to contend for you. And what he says is, I need you to contend for me. The faith is on you. I'm putting that on you. And if you want to contend for the faith like I have called you to, what that means in your life is that you need to pursue the holiness of God. All right. Be holy as I am holy, he says. 
our, our youth group right now, they're doing a series on sex, and I really commend them for doing that series. I was not blessed with that when I was growing up in youth group, and um, I'm really thankful that our, our youth ministers lead our young people in that. And one of the things I talk about in that series is the inevitable question that we ask when it comes to sex, especially growing up, is how far is too far? How far is too far? And, and really the, the point is that that's a, that's a bad question because what you're attempting to do is ask, how far can I walk from God before I've gone too far? You know, and the right question is, how close in this life can I get to God? You know, how far can his grace pull me towards his holiness? Like how well can I preach for the faith with my life? And one of the, the great preachers I've listened to, I've worn out all of his tapes and CDs is a guy named Fred Craddock and he's just brilliant. But every sermon ends this way. That's why you need to come to church. <laughs> And at first, you know, as like a, a young guy hearing that, I was like, okay, there's a little bit more to it than just coming to church. But if you look in verse three, what it literally says is that the faith is handed down among the saints. It's, it's like a baton is the imagery. The faith is handed down among the saints. The saints are the people of God, the people of the church, right? And so the, the reason you wanna be at church as a young person and hear series like they're doing in the youth group about how far is too far, you know, the reason that I want to be at church among people who are older than me, wiser than me, people who are frankly holier than me is the hope that some of that holiness rubs off on me. Now, you are not going to become more holy apart from the holy people of God. You follow? Like, you are not going to pursue holiness by yourself out there and have any success. If you want to be holy, then you need to take that baton from the people who are holy and be prepared to pass it on to those who are not. You know, that's why you're here even when it's raining outside. Not because you're gonna hear the best sermon you've ever heard or sing all the songs you wanna sing or the coffee's gonna be the perfect temperature and if not, you're gonna to complain to Eric. People do complain about those things. All right. You're here because holiness is here. And that's what you're being called to. That's your job. Contend for it. Contend for it. If you don't know Christ and you want to be baptized in the waters behind me, I'd love to do that with you today. If you'd like his holiness to wash over you and prepare you for new life in him, I'd love to baptize you. If you'd like prayers, we've got shepherds in the back who'd love to pray with you. Let's stand and sing together. Holy Lord, most holy Lord.